you have bad things happen in your life. Bad things happen to people every day. But those things do not have to define you. And, and how you react to those negative instances uh, will determine your character. The Bear River Massacre, as horrific as it was, doesn't define us today. The hard work of our people and what we're trying to do to remember them, that's the important part of the story. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to be talking about Chapter 27 of Volume 2 of Saints, Fire in the Dry Grass. And we have two amazing guests here with us. Why don't we have both of you just take a minute and introduce yourselves. First, uh, Darren Perry. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have the church acknowledge our history. And so I serve as the chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation. Uh, our people lived in northern Utah, southern Idaho, and so we were here when the pioneers got here. We're still here. We're so grateful to have you this morning, Darren. Thank you for coming and visiting with us. And we have Scott Christensen. Hi, it's also uh, an honor for me to be here. I've known Darren for a lot of years and his family for decades now, and it's been a great honor for me to do research on the history of his people and, and to see the miracles that really unfolded for their tribe. So to start off with this morning, our listeners will have learned in just a brief little flashback about an episode in American history and in the history of the West about an event that we call the Bear River Massacre. That's probably new to a lot of our listeners. Can you tell us about that? Maybe either or both of you tell us what was the event? Why did it happen? Well, the Bear River Massacre is what historians believe is the largest massacre of Native Americans in the history of the U.S., especially west of the Mississippi. And we believe between 300 to 400 of Shoshone men, women, and children were massacred on a cold January morning on January 29th in 1863. And I tell people it's the forgotten massacre. I mean, most people that grow up in Utah and uh, attend school here have never really heard about it. If they've heard the name, they don't know anything about what happened. And so, Darren, where did this happen? Well, today's site, it's about two miles north of Preston, Idaho. Now, Idaho was created in 1871. The massacre happened in 1863. So I guess technically you could say it was the Washington Territories or Utah Territories. And the closest community would have been Franklin. That would have been the Saints outpost, I, I guess you could say, from Salt Lake City. And I believe Franklin was established in 1860. But our people wintered there along the Bear River because of the hot springs and other things for centuries. So that's where we were as Mormon pioneers came to the valley. So tell us what was happening in the United States and in the Utah Territory at that time that led up to this. There were a few things that led up to it. The Mormon people themselves did not perpetrate this massacre, although their presence and the pressure it put on the natural resources that were there caused it. So... Here you have a group of California volunteers that signed up to fight in the Civil War in California under the command of Patrick Connor. Halfway across Nevada, they get new orders. They think the LDS people are going to succeed from the Union. They're worried about that. The government is, federal government. And their new orders were, let's go to Salt Lake, establish a fort. But also, they were able to keep an eye on the overland mail route that came through the area, too, and the telegraph. So they were there to provide protection for that, but mostly to keep an eye on, you know, those Mormons because you need to keep an eye on them. So this is post-Utah War. It is. And we now have troops up there kind of monitoring the local Mormons to see what is going to happen. Are they going to stay in the Union and be faithful? And, and that brings our troops down. 
It does. So it gets troops in the area. They'd signed up to fight, and now they're what they feel like. They're, they're on a babysitting expedition. They weren't happy about it. The LDS people weren't happy about their presence. And so as the Shoshone people who lived in Cache Valley, there were California and Oregon trails cut through the heart of that land also. So you have immigrants from the east. You have all of these factors, and there's obviously interaction between the Shoshone people and those people. Sagwich and his band were always considered by the saints in Cache Valley as the friendly ones. What that tells me is there were other groups in there that weren't as friendly. Pocatello and Bear Hunter's bands were a little more rambunctious. They'd take a horse or cattle every now and then. There were depredations that were taking place, and so letters started coming to Salt Lake that we've got an Indian problem. You know, we're doing our best to live up here, but something's got to be done. There was a couple of people who had lost their life that were immigrants. So those letters came to Salt Lake, and a federal judge issued arrest warrants for Sagwich and Bear Hunter and Pocatello and Sandpitch, the chiefs. And they made their way up to Camp Douglas, and Colonel Connor was now mustered into service. But he made a statement before he left. He said, he's not going to go arrest anyone. That was never his intent. He said that nits make lice. So it was his intent to make sure that there wasn't going to be an Indian problem going forward if he had anything to do with it. That phrase you just mentioned is such a horrific thing to say. That is the same thing that the Missourians said about the people at Hans Mill. Mm-hmm. And I remember from volume one, I, our listeners probably remember, like that just punches you in the face for somebody to say that about a little child, which Amanda Barnes Smith lost her son. So to hear that again, that phrase, nits makes lice, just makes me sick to my stomach. It does, and it's been repeated over time by a few people. But yeah, it was his intent to make sure that the problem was going to go away forever. His men who had signed up to fight were not fighting, and now we have an opportunity to go make a name for ourselves. And so it was an easy decision for them to leave their safe confines of Fort Douglas and march, even dead winter, in horrific conditions to the Indian encampment. They were led by Porter Rockwell, of all people. Which is is problematic because the Shoshone people, as we said, were friendly with the members of the church that lived in that area. And so Porter Rockwell leading them, that seems problematic. It's a little bit, well, not to us because we don't believe he took part in any way. We don't believe any of the local saints took part. You know, the saints didn't fire a bullet, but they were absolutely the cause of the massacre because if they would have stayed out of Cache Valley and the immigrants would have stayed out of Cache Valley, there wouldn't have been that pressure on the resources. We lived a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, so it was important that we have those wild seeds and berries at certain times of the year. The saints are up there gathering the same berries and seeds and hunting the same animals that we needed to survive. And there just wasn't enough resources for both groups. And there were 10,000 settlers in northern Utah. So how many Shoshone people were up there approximately? Well, it, it varied. And if Connor would have went to the site two weeks earlier, he would have probably found two to 3,000 Shoshone. Wow. Because the first part of January was always a gathering place. And they performed a ceremony called the Warm Dance. The Worm Dance hasn't been done since that massacre, but the Worm Dance was performed to bring in spring faster. And so Shoshone groups from everywhere, Wind River, the Eastern Band, the Western Shoshones, all those family groups would get together for a two-week celebration to dance and to worship and to play games and renew acquaintances that a lot of times it was a yearly event that everybody got together. 
by that time, most of the groups had gone, and we think there were probably between five to 700 Shoshone. It's hard to say, and history hasn't really preserved that. One thing I always say about Mormon people, we're really good about keeping records and making sure we write everything down, but my people are oral history people. Right, right. But thanks to my grandmother, you know, she started writing everything down, but we just don't have the specific numbers. So Darren, I, I remember reading one account that I'd love to hear your response to, that a day or two before the massacre, there were a number of people in your tribe that had dreams and visions warning them to leave, and that actually about half of Sagwitch's band had gone over the Box Elder Valley the day before. Is, is that accurate? That is accurate. One thing I like to tell people is, the Great Spirit has always communicated with my people through dreams and visions, from Lehi to Nephi to everyone. And so we believe that's how the Great Spirit communicated with the Shoshone people, through dreams and spiritual manifestations like that. There was a medicine man by the name of Tinned Up that two days before the massacre had a dream one night. In his dream, he saw his people being killed by pony soldiers. He woke everyone up in the middle of the night, including all of the chiefs, and had counsel and said, here's what I had a dream. And, and it wasn't that the chiefs didn't believe him because there were a lot of families that moved with Tinned Up that night. Sagwitch and some of the other chiefs, though, had always had interaction with the military before. They'd always been able to parlay or negotiate a peaceful settlement. Very seldom were shots fired and people were killed. So they felt like moving a whole village of maybe five to 700 Shoshones in the middle of the night in January, bitter cold, deep snow, below freezing, was probably a monumental task, first of all, if they could pull it off. And they couldn't pull it off without leaving tracks of where they were going. And so I just felt like they thought that they probably could negotiate their way out of whatever was coming because they'd always been able to do so. But there were a number that had gone with Tinned Up and his family. Some went to Brigham City, where a lot of our saints were living and working for the pioneers. Some went to Promontory. Uh, there was a large group of Shoshones that wintered at Promontory. At the massacre, the soldiers arrive and maybe can you relate what happened there, but then also how did Sagwitch escape? Sagwitch was always the first one up, our history tells us. He got up as usual on the morning of January 29th and he stepped outside of his teepee to survey the area around his encampment. And as he looked to the southeast, there's a bluff and uh, the town of Preston is up on that bluff today. But he noticed what he described as a cloud that was on the edge of the rim. And I don't think he quite understood what it was until that cloud started moving down the bluff. And then he realized what was taking place. The troops from Camp Douglas had arrived. What he was seeing, if you can imagine, it's below zero. The horses had been going all night, the cavalry. They were there. They were lathered up, fighting through the deep snow. Every time the horse would take a breath, it would puff out steam. So this was a steam cloud of 200 horses and men, and they'd arrived. And so Sagwitch woke everyone up, told them to get ready. He wasn't quite sure what was going to happen, but if there was going to be a fight, they needed to be prepared. My grandmother said some of the women picked up their woven willow baskets and winnowing pans to use them for shields, like it would have made a difference. Some of the men ran towards the river and dropped into foxholes that had been dug along the river in the summer months by the children. I mean, think about that. I can totally imagine living along that river and digging these play foxholes as a youth. 
the military said those foxholes were dug quickly because they knew they were coming. Well, it's January. You're not digging anything in January. So they used those, and I'm sure never did those men realize that they'd be using those holes to await a military conflict. Connor and his men got closer to the river, and as they forded the river, they began to fire upon the Shoshone people. So there was no opportunity for the chance to even try to negotiate. None. It was shoot and ask questions Hmm. later. We believe the massacre happened over the course of about four hours by the time they'd completely left the area. And by then, we believe between 300 and 400 Shoshone men, women, and children were dead, uh, massacred at the hands of civilization. Sagwich was on the battlefield for most of the day, the massacre field, sorry, and escaped by riding a horse across the river. And another man escaped by holding onto the tail of the horse that Sagwich rode across the river. Sagwich received a bullet wound to the hand, but that was about it. And he escaped to live another day. The people that survived this horrific attack, where did they go? What happened to them? In the book, we have this very brief flashback, like a paragraph that says that this massacre that you've just described happened. And then we kind of flash forward to where it's many years later and Sagwich and his people are still around. What kind of happened in between there? The funny thing is Sagwich didn't really leave the area. He stayed in the Cache Valley. And we think he went to the south end of Cache Valley in a town today called Paradise. And it is Paradise. I was there yesterday. <laughs> I have an old farmer friend up there that I go sit on his porch at night as the sun's going down. And it's up by Porcupine Lake. And it's, it's beautiful. just, it is oh beautiful. my goodness, it's <laughs> awesome. So we believe Sagwich went there. There's actually a basin up on the hill there. And it's called Sagwich Basin by everybody in Cache Valley. And so we believe he went there as a place to escape and it was hidden and no one would bother him. I think he probably went to regroup. But there were groups of people that really scattered. So we have some in Brigham City, some north to Pocatello area, to Fort Hall, and some to Promontory, some to the Eastern Band, some to Duck Valley. Uh, We had cousins everywhere. And maybe some even to the Goshutes. The Goshutes are really Shoshone. Don't let them tell you anything different. And so (laughs) they speak our language fluently, and we recognize them as close cousins. So it's interesting. The the massacre happens in 1863. The federal government doesn't establish reservations until 1869. And so the remnant of these people affected by this horrific event are still living in the area, and they have to figure out a way to continue to live uh, as their world gets smaller and smaller with competition from settlers. They tried to pick up the pieces the best they could, and Sagwich stayed in the Cache Valley. They worked for local farmers and ranchers to just do anything that they could to maintain a lifestyle they'd always known and to stay in this beautiful country. There was a group of Shoshones that established uh, just north of Corinne a farm with the help of George Washington Hill, and this is a few years later. But just put in context of what you said, they built this beautiful farm and got right to the end where harvest was about to take place. And we're talking 100 acres of potatoes and corn and a few of the locals in Corinne. Now, Corinne was a Gentile town. It was a railroad town. There wasn't any LDS people in Corinne. A couple of men in that town spread word that the army was coming back to take care of the local Indians again because they were getting too powerful. There were too many of them, and they abandoned that farm that night just to kind of give you a perspective of... And it had been more than 10 years. 
but still the images of what had taken place in 1863 was probably fresh on everyone's mind and they weren't going to stick around to see if it was true or not true. So it's incredible. What are you doing now at the massacre site and what is the Northern Band of the Shoshone doing to preserve this memory and helping us to better understand this episode? I love history. And I, I loved sitting at the feet of my grandmother. Her name was Mae Timbimbu Perry. She was our tribal historian. Scott knows her as well as I do, actually. So because he did a lot of research work with her. But she'd tell me all these stories and bring these things to life. And I developed a great love for history. So I go to school and the teacher says, we're going to talk about Native American history next week. And I'm so excited because now my classmates are going to hear what I've heard my whole life. Right. And we come to that day and none of the stories that my grandmother told me are being taught. And so it was just mind-blowing to me that there was that disconnect. Because of that, it's just been so important for me to share a part of history that has been lost. And, and I believe that we're not better off because we don't have it. And so it's important to me that we share the Shoshone history from the Shoshone perspective. We have a perspective that is unique and that it's never been heard in the world today. And so two years ago, well, not quite two years ago, we were able to purchase 700 acres of that sacred massacre site. Now, here's a group of people who were not given reservation land. So if you think of it in that terms, natives identify with land. Mm -hmm. Having land is really, really important to Native American people. And even if it's a reservation land and land that maybe they were moved to, there's a sacred feeling there. And so being one of the tribes without reservation land was always a problem for us. And so a couple of years ago, we started putting in our minds, if we were to have a piece of property to call our own, that land would certainly be what we would want to have, especially since most of the bodies were never buried. They're just under the surface. And so it's sacred burial ground to us. And we were fortunate enough with some tribal businesses that we have and some fundraising, we were able to purchase over 700 acres of that sacred site. And with that, we uh, plan to build a beautiful interpretive center on the site to tell the story, how our people lived pre-Brigham Young, what that looked like and what it looked like once the saints got there. And it's not a negative or bad thing. I think for the most part, we did everything we could to get along, but the pressure for the resources and other things just made it impossible. You have two groups of people living two different lifestyles and the resources were not going to allow both groups to keep living the way they'd lived. And so it's just really important for us to want to obtain the land to be able to tell the story from our perspective. It's a very important story to tell, and that's why we really appreciate having you here to provide that perspective, especially as Ben, you mentioned, this is just kind of a paragraph in, in Saints, and so to hear more of the story was great. Because then it flashes forward to 10 years, so this is in 1873. So let's talk a little bit about what happens in 1873. In 1873, Shoshone leaders and others started having spiritual manifestations. We believe that three men appeared to John Malmberg, who was Sagwitch's cousin, and three men appeared to him and told him of the existence of a God among the Mormon people and that this God would tell us how to live going forward. And so our people, Sagwitch especially, had heard 
Uh, he knew of a man that lived in Ogden. His name was George Washington Hill. Uh, we called him Inca Pompey. means man with red hair. And George had red hair. So <laughs> the funny thing about him, and, and I don't know for sure, but I think Sagwich knew of George Washington Hill. George Washington Hill was one of the few in northern Utah that spoke Shoshone fluently. He'd been called in 1855 to be a missionary to the Lemhi Shoshone in central Idaho. You're thinking Lemhi Shoshone. Who named him that? That's a Book of Mormon term. <laughs> so I think he probably named him that once they got there. But George had been called in 1855 to go, and he was actually pretty successful in central Idaho to some of the Shoshone Paiutes that were up in that area. He actually worked what were considered miracles uh, including the raising of a, a child from near death yeah. and baptized, as I recall, 56 Shoshone in a single day. And this was up in the, the Limhi area? Yeah, near where Salmon, Idaho Salmon, is now. Salmon. Yeah. I remember going to Camp Little Limhi. That was my scout <laughs> camp that I went to. So I'm, I'm picturing Palisades. Okay. But I, I, I got you. So Salmon, Idaho, yeah, that's Salmon, what we're Idaho. talking about. Yeah. And it was successful until I think one of the missionaries, the Shoshone people have a different oral history. So we believe George was up there with three or four others. And Scott, you can correct me about that. But there were, I think, initially quite a few more okay. settlers from something like that. But one of the missionaries ended up being killed by one of the Indians. And so they abandoned the mission. And in our oral history, we have that some of the other missionaries didn't take the time to really learn the Shoshone language like they should have. And so there is always a distrust with some of the missionaries. And we talk in our tribe today that the missionaries only wanted to be baptized by George Washington Hill because he was so fluent in our language. They believed that he took the time to really learn the language good. And so that's who they trusted. And that's who they wanted to be baptized. They didn't want any other people to baptize them. So, so Sagwich sends writers down to George Hill in Ogden. Actually, Sagwich is part of that. Okay. I, I think he's leading that group. He uh, does. He goes and, and knocks on George's door. Well, this is what the book says. It's this yeah. moment where George gets up and he comes to the door and there's all of these people here who've come to see him. Like, this is a missionary's dream come true. <laughs> Can you imagine? Except for the fact that George wasn't a missionary anymore. Yeah, and, he didn't have permission. He didn't have permission. And he told Sagwich and his people that. He said, there's order in the Lord's church, and I'm no longer called to be a missionary. So go to Salt Lake and make a request, but I cannot do what you're asking me to do. What, what happens? Well, we believe from our history and George's journals that Sagwich didn't take that as an answer. He actually showed up for two more days in a row. So three days he shows up and has the same conversation with George Washington Hill and says, look, the Great Spirit has told us that we need to quit our roaming ways and, and we need to be taught and become productive members of your church. And so those three days go by and then George gets a letter from Brigham Young asking that he come visit him in his office here in Salt Lake. And uh, George does. And I'm going from George's journal. You know, Sagwich is out of the picture at the moment, but George's journal says that he walked into the office of Brigham Young and Brigham Young said, I've had a heavy load on my shoulders for some time. And this load is now going to be yours. And he, he called him to be a, said, I'm calling you to be a missionary to the Shoshone people in the northern country, which would have been Sagwich and his people. He said, my office is always open. Seek the Lord in prayer as you fulfill this. But this is your load now. 
And so there was no mistakes on who had permission to do what now. That's what we believe happened. And actually from there, he goes home. Guess who appears the next day? Sagwich. And has this conversation with him again. But this time he has a different answer. This time George tells Sagwich that, uh, yes, chief, I will come. It's a challenge though, because George Hill is trying to make a living for his family. And And how old is he at this time? Because this was 15 years ago that he was originally called as a missionary. Yeah, so it's interesting that both both, both Sagwich and George Hill are born in 1822. So they're they're both uh, in their 50s. And uh, he's working as a night watchman for Union Pacific, does not have control of his schedule. So he's excited to find a time to go teach the Shoshone and see if that proselyting can be successful. But he can't promise a date because he doesn't know yet when his next free day will be. This is one of my favorite parts of this story Mm -hmm. that's, that's included in the book. Eventually, I think he takes the train to Corinne, right? He does. And then he's going to walk. And as he starts to walk, he starts meeting people. Tell us about that. Well, what gets him to that, he goes to work one night just thinking he's going to work. And as he gets to work as the night watchman, his only job was to guard the train that came from Evanston, make sure nobody took anything. So he gets word that the train had derailed in Evanston. Now, we don't have a cell phone. He doesn't run back home to say to his wife, hey, I don't have any work tonight. I think I'm going to catch a freighter to Corinne and go find Sagwich. He doesn't have that conversation with his wife, which I'd be dead if I didn't have that conversation. (laughs) So he decides at that moment with no plan, he's going to jump a freighter and head to Corinne. He gets to Corinne. It's still dark. Wasn't that long of a train ride and doesn't know the lay of the land really. So he hunkers down to get an hour or two of sleep. As it gets light, he asks a few of the locals where the Shoshone are camped, gets the general direction, and then uh, heads out on foot. And then the story gets really interesting from there. He encounters a Shoshone brave riding a horse towards town that tells him, hey, I'm going to town to get meat for a great feast. And he was probably confused. And he meets actually another one that was on his way to town to get food. As he travels further down the road, as he gets closer to the Shoshone encampment, we believe that Sagwich, he sees in the distance a man riding a horse, leading a horse. And it was his friend that he'd met on his doorstep a few times already. It was Sagwich. Can you imagine the conversation those two had? And, and I'm going to just make it up in my head, but I can imagine it went something like this. Sagwich said, you know, I'm here to pick you up. I'm sure you're tired. And to which George probably said, that's awesome. Thank you. I, I am tired. But I didn't tell anybody I was coming. Uh, to which Sagwich said, I had a dream last night and the Great Spirit told me you were coming. What's not lost on me is, you know, the Great Spirit had prepared George and Sagwich for this moment. He'd prepared them to meet on that specific day and time. And so a group of Shoshone people who had had their lives turned upside down 10 years previous could now have the opportunity to hear something that would change their life forever. And that's kind of what happened. It's just miraculous. I mean, it's just a miracle. There's no other way to describe it. When I first learned of this story, I was talking to Scott about it. And I grew up in Cache Valley, Darren. So I I knew a little about the Bear River Massacre. And then come to find out later, my own grandfather, Newell Nish, who lived in Plymouth, Utah, was really good friends with your grandfather, Moroni Tillman. My great-grandfather. Great-grandfather. And he would come in and winter in Plymouth, and they were really good friends. And Moroni was the first Native American bishop in the church. Your people have an amazing history. They joined en masse. They um, did. 
Tell us about what happened. Well, that morning, as George described in his journal, and I've read every journal that George ever wrote in and his family histories, uh, is it what he described, the greatest feast that ever was. <laughs> he starts teaching them the gospel. I don't know if it was an hour or two later or the next day, George ends up baptizing 101 Shoshones in the Bear River. Think about that. It's the same Bear River where Sagwich had seen almost the entire destruction of his people. So fast forward, you know, this church establishes a church farm for our people. We were supposed to be moved to Fort Hall by the government. And Sagwich had a conversation with Brigham Young to say, what should we do? We're members of the church now. And Brigham Young counseled him to not go to a reservation, that there would be some property secured for them. And they would be taught to farm, grow crops, and raise cattle and sheep and live like the pioneers were living. Mm -hmm. It was a different way of life. And so Sagwich's people are often described, and I've heard it described many times, as having a childlike faith. They did everything to exactness in what they were asked to do. And there were so many firsts. Sagwich and his wife, Biwachi, were one of the first Lamanite couples to receive their endowment and were sealed as a couple in the endowment house by mm -hmm. Wilford Woodruff. 1875. 1875, two wow. years after. A couple of days after Sagwich was baptized, he was called to Salt Lake and was given the Melchizedek priesthood. And so the Shoshone men who lived at Washakie, that was the church farm established just north of Tremont in Utah today by Plymouth. They uh, donated more than a thousand hours to the building of the Logan Temple after traveling the 45 miles one way, worked all week long, and then uh, returned home to attend to their affairs on the weekends and attend church. All the church services were done in Shoshone except the sacrament prayer. Sagwich's grandson Moroni, who you just mentioned, mm -hmm. my great-grandfather was the first bishop called in this dispensation, and his two counselors were Shoshone. And I've got a beautiful picture of the first Shoshone Relief Society in 1918. Wow. A group of uh, Shoshone women outside the church for a picture. There's been so many firsts. They were really successful in living in the United Order for many years. People will think of that and, and think, well, they had all things in common. That's true, but that's the way of life they'd always lived. Native Americans didn't ever have a concept of personal property. For centuries, everything was common, and you worked, and if you had excess, then you shared with your neighbor or friends. But that was a way of life they'd always lived, so that was an easy thing for them to do. 100% tithe payers, the, yeah. the Washakie yeah. Ward. The whole community received a citation from the church as being full tithe payers, the whole community for years. Yeah, I think it's pretty fun. amazing. <clears throat> Sagwich's son, Jaeger, who was a survivor of the Bear River Massacre as a 10 or 11-year-old, he attends General Conference. Almost all the Washakie Saints would come twice a year to conference in Salt Lake. And he was invited to the stand in 1926 and was given the opportunity to be one of the speakers. And he spoke in Shoshone and someone stood next to him to translate. And we've done a lot of research and have learned that that is the first occurrence in the history of the church where a conference talk was given in a language other than English. Wow. And that, was it prepared before? Was it on no, the spot? No, oh, it wow. was on the spot. And the funny thing is I had a meeting a couple of months ago with Elder Snow, and he walked in and said, and then the presiding bishop's there, and he said, who can tell me what the first language other than English was spoken from the pulpit at general conference? 
And I looked at him and I raised my hand <laughs> and I said, it was Shoshone. And he goes, how did you know? <laughs> well, and I well. said, well, he was my great-great-grandfather for one. <laughs> so, but you think about it, all the saints from England and Scandinavia and other countries were here. I would have thought Dutch or something, you know, oh, something sure. was spoken before Shoshone. The funny thing about his remarks, and he, he bore his testimony and his bishop translated one of the things he said in his testimony was the gospel had changed his life in such a way that he no longer had a desire to kill the white man. I imagine it woke up a few guys on the front <laughs> of the tabernacle as he said that and then just talked about what the gospel had done for him and his people and how faithful they were in living it. Darren, this is such an inspiring story. It's an incredible story. And if our listeners happen to live in the Intermountain West, I would just invite you, if you're ever in the Cache Valley area, on your way from Preston up to Downey, there's a marker there. Soon there will be an interpretive center. Take the time to go and learn about this incredible and really important part of our history. I would encourage you to do so. And if you need a personal tour guide, get a hold of me. I'll take you mm -hmm. personally to the site and tell you stories about things that happened there. The interpretive center is important because we're going to tell the whole story, the, the massacre, the interaction with the LDS people, the conversion, and what it did to change a group of people and who we are today. That's the important part of the story is we're still here. The massacre didn't define us, but it makes us work harder to be a better people. You have bad things happen in your life. Bad things happen to people every day, but those things do not have to define you. And, and how you react to those negative instances uh, will determine your character. And so the Bear River Massacre, as horrific as it was, uh, doesn't define us today. The hard work of our people and what we're trying to do to remember them and to teach our youth and teach everybody going forward, that's the important part of the story. That's so inspiring. Thank you, Darren. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I would just remind our listeners that you can read more about Sagwitch and you can find some great resources for additional study with the church history topics in the Gospel Library. There's a new one called Sagwitch. It will point you to additional books and articles and places where you can learn even more about this incredible story, uh, both of the American West and also of church history. It's an important part of who we are, and we're so grateful, Darren and Scott, for you coming today and visiting with us. Next on the Saints podcast, we'll be talking about Chapter 28. We invite you to come back and learn more. There was lots we didn't get a chance to discuss today, including the trial of the century, the Brigham Young trial. There's wonderful things we're going to learn about Hawaii and George Q. Cannon, and, and we'll pick up on that story in next week's episode. Thank you for joining us.